Kathy Wood, sign of a bubble. Mark Zuckerberg and Musk, cage match, sign of a bubble. That's all I'm saying is if this is not a sign of a bubble, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't follow those standards. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. How your week be at, Playa? Great, man. How about you? It's good. I'm coming into this weekend with the hotness, Brosefina. You know, you inspired me. Obviously. A couple, couple of weeks ago, you uh, sported some killer kicks at this uh presentation you were rocking and uh nike.com was having a sweet sale this week man Ooh. i made two purchases just to kind of keep up with you all right oh that's good good that you did because i had two pairs of shoes that showed up a couple of days ago so, so see so i'm still behind i thought i was coming i, I just know. felt i felt that you were i felt like a competitive <laughs> vibe come along and so like my trigger yeah. finger Trigger yeah, finger away. Nice work. Excellent work. So yeah, that's the game. thing with me. I think we, I think we talked about this on the pod before that I do not buy clothes. Like I haven't bought. Oh, this is actually not true because I left behind like a sport coat on a trip recently, and so I had to stop at an airport, Johnson and Murphy. But before that, oh, you bought it. Wait, you bought an airport? I know. Sport coat? I know, man. It, it hurt me. It hurt me. But I hadn't bought an article of clothing in years, probably before that. But then shoes. Shoes is my thing. I keep, dude, I keep telling you, you don't brag about that on the, on a public forum oh, like this sorry. podcast. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> Before we get started, please go rate and review the podcast. And we love your listener mail. SkippyDougals at gmail.com. Hit us up. We like your questions. We like your comments. We like your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. You ready? Yeah. I'm going to say three words. And I want you to name what this is referring to. Okay, you got it. Mm-hmm. Send me location. Oh no, you're not going here. <laughs> oh, I'm already there, baby. The, the cage match. <laughs> yes, I'm already there. Zuck already and Musk. There. So here's the thing. I feel like every other week this year, I come on this here podcast and say some version of, you know what the latest sign is that it's a bubble. You think? I wait, you think? Get your nonsense out of your mouth already. You think this okay. relates to bubble talk? I mean, I don't know. If this is not a sign of a bubble, I don't know what is. We got two billionaires trying to be in a cage match. What, what other signs of a bubble do you need? Two billionaires trying to be in a cage match. So here's what happened, people. Here's what happened. We had one Mark Zuckerberg that is challenging one Elon Musk to a cage match. So Mark Zuckerberg says... Cage match. Elon Musk says, I'm up for a cage match if he is LOL. Then Mark Zuckerberg comes back and says, send me location. Okay, let me recap because I didn't follow this closely because it's complete (laughs) nonsense that I shouldn't waste my time with. Like Zuckerberg just out of nowhere said like, hey, Musk, can I hit you in the face? Like how how did this exactly transpire? I mean, look, I... I don't know what happened behind the scenes, so it's it's hard for me to know. But that this is this is what I'm witnessing. This is what I'm witnessing. And then the last thing I saw was Elon Musk comes and says, "I have this great move that I call the Walrus, where I just lie on top of my opponent and do nothing." 
Yeah, are we really breaking this down? Is this, is this like really where this <laughs> is this what I'm saying? There are people like you and me that we're we're like, oh, what are what are Meta's financials looking like? What is free cash flow looking like? How is it in how is Zuckerberg thinking about investing capital allocation? Meanwhile, what is he up to? He's uh, doing these crazy military challenges. Yeah, and trying to fight Walrusai. Well, and he already had his first, like, a couple of weeks back, he had his first, like, official sanctioned some sort of martial arts fighting event, which I believe he won. So, props. Yeah, He, I, he just has too like much it. time on his hands, which is crazy to say <laughs> as the uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. CEO of, like, three of the world's largest and most influential companies that he has too much time on his hands, but he clearly does. Get back to work, though. You know what I mean? I need you to make my capital. Oh, no, I disagree. There's no, only I'm, so I'm much. Joking. Like, I mean, there's only so much time you could spend thinking about work. Kathy Wood, sign of a bubble. Mark Zuckerberg and Musk, cage match? Sign of a bubble. That's all I'm saying is if this is not a sign of a bubble, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't follow those standards. <laughs> one thing that One thing that happens in a bubble is People go, well, I'm just going to do what Buffett does because Buffett should be easy to copy, smart. right? That's smart. Um, yeah. there, there was a a story I came across this week from a presentation by the author of The Snowball, which uh, breaks down Buffett and his business businesses, excuse me, where Alice Schroeder details uh, walking through Nebraska Furniture Mart with him. Yep. Fascinating. Yes. There's just rows and rows of carpet on the shelves. And Buffett walks her through. This is one of his 40 plus businesses at the time. He walks her through. Hey, this green one has a 20% margin. This gray one sells really well. It's on sale this week. Uh, Typically has a 22% margin. Currently has an 11% margin. Goes on for rows and rows for thousands of different types of carpet, right? Walks back to the office. Gets a detailed breakdown of the week by week sales of C's candy and picks up the Santa Monica location and tells her why there's a 5% dip in sales and basically does that for all of his businesses from memory. So, what's your takeaway? You're not Buffett, man. This is, I, we've talked about <laughs> Jordan before. Like, but all the people that are just like, oh, I'm just, uh, I'll just take some, I'll throw a couple Buffett quotes on my wall and, you know, I'm going to be worth 50 billion bucks in no time. No, you're not. You might as well stop trying is how I feel. <laughs> not trying to invest, but trying to be Buffett. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, don't. Yeah. Because you got to do you. That's the thing, that's, right? You got you to do you. You got to do you. What is your own style? What's your personality? Right. Et cetera, et cetera. We always talk about that. I agree. This is, I mean, this is some next level stuff. The way that Buffett, at least at this point in time, was managing his thoughts around investing was get into all the nitty gritty details of the operations, at least maybe not the how, but the output, right? Of the operations. That's his style. It's wild, man. Well, there's so many stories, like so much to this. I remember one of the first CEOs that I worked for long ago, knew everyone's name as the company grew from like 30 people to 300 people. And I would pull him aside and be like, how, how do you do this? This is literally impossible to me. And he'd be like, that's what's, that's the most important thing 
and not the most important. That's the most important thing at work for me is like knowing these people that are making this business grow. So because it's that important for me, not only do I spend more time on it, but I like focus on it intently. And that's what matters for me. He used to even go around and hand people paychecks. This is in the the days when you still got like a paper paycheck and it wasn't direct deposited, right? Um, For Buffett, not only does he clearly have an incredible gift to do this and to do this better than almost anyone on earth, it also really matters to him. Like he's really interested in it and it's meaningful. Yeah. And so one sidebar story, then I'll come back to this with a statement around Buffett. On paychecks, paper paychecks, I remember my first job. I was like, I'm going to get me a job. I'm going to get me some money. Right? That's what jobs do. I work for my couple of weeks. I get this paycheck. This pe- They hand me this piece of paper. And I was literally like, what? how do I turn this into money? <laughs> like, I, didn't, <laughs> I, I had to leave my job and then figure out how to open a bank account. Like I did. I was like, <laughs> anyway, financial literacy, people. It's important. Financial <laughs> literacy. <laughs> So on the Buffett train, I'm sure what you said is true. I'm about to make something up, but I'm sure what you said is true around Buffett. This is just, this is what fascinates him, right? He wants to be all up in there. There's also maybe some kind of a side effect. This is what I'm speculating on. Some kind of a side effect where I think at work, generally speaking, your boss shouldn't know more than you do when it comes to your own ish, right? Like the, whatever the thing is that you own that you run, I don't mean shouldn't have more knowledge or experience than you, but I believe that everyone at work is the head of something, even if that something is like a tiny little, you know, like seemingly a tiny little thing. And your boss shouldn't know more than you do about that thing. And that should be something I believe you should have in your mind. I know more about this thing than my boss does. Warren Buffett isn't technically the boss of all the CEOs of these companies, but he is. I mean, he, he, I guess, reporting line wise, he is, but he lets them, but he lets them run. But if you, if you just kind of extrapolate my thought I just threw out there. If you know Buffett owns your company and you know that Buffett's going to walk through your aisles and know what is discounted, what's not, what sales are for certain SKUs, you better be all up on your game. And so there's like a bit of a, by doing this, I'm not saying it's why he does it, but I think that there is a um, an impact that by doing this kind of thing and being who he is, it probably creates more finely tuned operators. Ooh, okay. I disagree. Uh, but Fair one, enough. let's talk about the management, Dougal's management philosophy over here. I think that's mm-hmm. generally a good take, right? Because if you don't have an owner, if you don't become an expert at something where you're the foremost expert in the company in that area, I'm going to say it coarsely, like, what good are you? <laughs> so, you know, like, you better be. The one-stop shop for something. Otherwise, you're easily replaceable. I like and, it. I, and expert. when I'm talking about expertise, it's not even technical expertise. I mean, like if you are the receptionist, right, in an organization, you are the head of making people feel good and welcome when they walk through the front door. You best be like the best at that. Like your boss shouldn't shouldn't know more about how to do that than you do. You should understand when people walk through the front door, what makes them feel better? Who's coming in next? What are the key appointments for the day, right? All that kind of stuff. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about too. So it's not just technical expertise. Continue. Yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to find a study that relates from our boy, Justin Carboneau, who was on the show, um, I think a year back. Yep. Uh, and I can't find it right here, but the gist of it is they did some research on CEOs that had 
been in seat for more than 10 years and found out that those stocks outperformed. The immediate question I have, which is the same as as I'd raised for you, is like, were they only allowed to be the CEO yeah. for more than a decade because their stock performed? So yeah. chicken egg it's debate. It's a card there. horse. Yeah. I think um, this with your thoughts on Buffett is probably the same. They they built a really solid business, which probably means they have incredible expertise and knew all this nonsense before Buffett came in and bought it. So you're you're saying, yeah, well, Buffett, when Buffett becomes your boss, you better up your game. I'm saying their game was probably already top notch. Yeah, you better you better keep it tight. I that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but I don't think you have to worry about that. I think they had already built a business that was proven to succeed, and Buffett felt it was so strongly about that business that he was willing to purchase it with his own capital. Yeah, so no, that, that's 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 true. That's true. Chicken later in life, again. later in life, but they might have they may have slipped a little bit. In this year's Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, there was one point where they were talking about CEOs, and I can't remember who they were discussing, but one of their CEOs they were talking about that is no longer CEO. I think he either left the company or he may have passed away. They were like, yeah, we probably should have replaced him like 10, 15 years before <laughs> before I end up leaving. And they went, good, but I don't think it had any impact on the business. Like it's kind of what they said. It was, it was a little bit of like a, I, I, that's probably a little tongue in cheek. But I think it was a testament to, you know, how they talk about how, uh, like, you you want a business that a dummy could run. In fact, they were not calling this individual a dummy. But uh, but I think it was like a similar concept to that, that obviously the CEO has an impact on the business. But I think they were saying the capital returns were not negatively impacted by the fact that this person maybe could have been replaced earlier. Alas. And, and that's definitely my style. I'm trying to buy a business that, like, my dog could run because there's all sorts of additional margin of safety that comes with that because you're not so reliant on excellent management that's true and we differ yeah in this world because the businesses i'm buying you 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 better be on the top of your game or else because this thing is priced for perfection i mean yeah you're buying stuff like nvidia which you don't currently own but you have owned in the past where the management team is so intelligent they're selling the stock right now because they know it's worth (laughs) it's overvalued Yes. Great management. So I'm going to reach into the fishbowl to talk about portfolio mistakes. But before I get there, I'm going to drop something else on you that is related. So Transdime, we have discussed Transdime, you and I, I don't know if we've discussed on the pod before outside of our 10 year competition, but Transdime is a stock. I love this company. Oh, Oh my goodness. This company, this company is so beautiful. This company is spitting out Karsh like it's nobody's business. Harsh equals cash, by the way. So Transdime brings like, I'm talking lip smacking, L O Cool J licking my lips style returns, return on equity, margins, everything. It does it beautifully. The reason I wouldn't have a bigger stake in Transdime, at one point I did. But the, the bigger reason I don't have a bigger stake in Transdime is because at some point the government's going to, when you make too much money, the government comes after that money. Yeah, Transdime right. just makes too much money. I'm confused. Are you still in the last segment where you're talking about Zuckerberg, Musk, the bubble talk? Is this just the Dougal's <laughs> version of Charles? Uh, could be. Could be. Could be. I'll get to the point though. But Transdime is a it's an aerospace and uh, a plane like aftermarket's parts manufacturer. Not se- sexy at all. But what they do is they end up getting these parts and then they sell them for ridiculous prices. A lot of it to the government. And so that's why I'm like at some point the government's gonna be like, nah, I don't think we should do this anymore. 
But for now, it spits out beautiful returns. My point of bringing it up right now is I saw something on uh, from the, a former Transdime CEO. So there was an investor. I mean, I'll just read this to you. It says, my aha moment came during a meeting with former CEO Nicholas Howley and a Transdime investor. In an effort to knock Howley off balance, the investor forcefully asked him why he should believe in the company following Howley's recent sale of millions of dollars of stock. So similar to what you're talking about in video management, Howley sold a bunch of Transdime. An investor was like, how am I still going to believe in this company when you don't believe in this company? Right? That's what the investor is basically saying. Howley stunned me when he sat up in his chair, put his elbows on the boardroom table, looked the guy in the eye, through his eye sockets, and said, this may come as a surprise to you, but I'm in this for the money. I haven't had many chances to sell stock under private equity ownership, and now I do. My wife wants a beach house, so we're going to get a beach house. You can believe what you want, but I'm not going anywhere. I've got more money to make, and if you choose to, you can make it with me. Beautiful. Love it. What's your, yeah. what's, what's your take on that? <laughs> Honesty goes a long way in life. And when you, <laughs> yes. I mean, when you actually lead, when you lead a company that you're confident in, it's easy to do that. Uh, you know, in my, like my business life, I work with a lot of different companies in different financial states. And I can tell you, there are some companies where if I was asked a similar question, I could give that answer. And there are others that aren't that strong and they're on a journey to get there. Right. And so I love that answer. I want to applaud that answer and I want to like encourage everyone to give that answer. But Dougal's way, you knowing your heart of hearts is 97% of the CEOs couldn't give that same answer because yeah. they don't have the fundamentals to back it up. No, exactly. That's very true. And there's a big difference between someone like Howley who sold some of his stock and what we were talking about with AMC, where like you sold all <laughs> of your stock. <laughs> like there's, that's, a, that's a very fundamental different belief in your organization. Yep. Okay. The fishbowl thing that I, I wanted to get out is around portfolio mistakes. Oh, wait, hold on. I'm not done with oh. Transdown. Like okay. the other thing I love so much about that is, hey, my wife wants a beach house. <laughs> <laughs> and i imagine i'm speculating here but i imagine like tied into that is like and i work long hours and she's mad about xyz and i gotta fly over here and over there and, and like this is my the bargaining chip i have man like it's the it, uh it's a beach house i just yeah, love the transparency go. of and also the thought that comes with that because it's it it shows you the type of leader here like it's not I needed some cash. It's like, no, I have these very clear expenditures on my personal balance sheet. And that's why I chose to show this amount of, of stock. And it just mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. Yeah. love that. Thanks for bringing it up. Absolute. Love trans time. Mm. Okay. Portfolio mistakes. There was this piece in Morningstar about the five portfolio mistakes that they seem that are pretty common. I want to throw these five out and then I want to have a discussion around portfolio mistakes. Maybe you made, right? You've seen that I've made, I've seen, et cetera. And this isn't trading mistakes. It's about like your holdings. Like what, if you look at a portfolio, what are errors? So there are five mistakes. I'm going to name one that we can go back. One is portfolio sprawl. Portfolio sprawl is having too many accounts, too many holdings in all your accounts. So you can't even like keep track of your nonsense. Number two. Redundant individual portfolios. So this is when in your portfolio, 
you have a big chunk of S&P 500 and you own Apple as an example, right? Which is a big part of the S&P 500. Three, also ran mutual funds. Uh, this is kind of, it's taking the, uh, the downside of the set it and forget it. So they're saying like, you bought this mutual fund back in 1996 and then you just let your portfolio run. And that mutual funds now ran, run by, I don't know, some 23 year old hacker, right? That wasn't the same mutual fund operator that you bought back in 1996 by a long shot, some version of that. Yeah. Let me, uh, I think we're going to kill that one. I don't think we're going to talk about it anymore because most mutual funds ETFs don't even last that long. <laughs> so if they do, <laughs> that is very true. You probably made a decent return. And like, yeah, should you do a portfolio checkup every year, every five years and, and eventually go, Hey, this isn't accomplishing what I thought it would accomplish. Maybe, but like, that's a good problem to have, man. If you hold something for 30 years, probably means cause it probably means they did a good job and you've been happy with the returns. That's so I'm true. not too concerned about that. Okay. One. That's probably true. The next one is asset allocation is not informed by plan. So you got a plan for your investing and then you're, everything's got a willy nilly away from it. And the last is that this is not what they called it. This is my interpretation. You got the wrong types of assets and the wrong types of accounts. So an example of that is there's an asset that is great for tax purposes and you have it in a tax sheltered account. So you're not getting the benefits of what that asset could provide you. So those are the five. What stands out to you in the five? We can go back and talk about that. And then I do want to discuss like some thoughts that come to your mind that you see that you've made around portfolio mistakes. All right. So the, the general concept here is like all of investing, which is contradictory, which really sucks. So your average investor is going to read an article like this and be like, I need a portfolio checkup. Well, the problem is they might've done a portfolio checkup nine months ago. They, they might never sit back and let their their thought out strategy actually run yes. because there's this desire to change things. And so you got to fight that here. But if you've never established a strategy or it's been, I'm going to say five years, to be honest, because even a yearly checkup can typically make people too active in the markets. And that hurts for a variety of reasons because the human mind wants to sell low and buy high even though that's the exact opposite of what you should do. So I don't know, Douglas, can you just jump in on that point? How do we balance the contradictory nature of this guidance? One of the ways I think about it is it's a stock versus flow type issue, which I don't mean that as in stock as in equity. What I mean is for flow is something like, a, that's the trading if you want to take it in equity. So I just mean like what you're doing, the activity I'll say is the flow. And the stock piece is, what is what's what does your portfolio look like? What are the holdings? And oftentimes, per what you were saying, I think people go to action and the activities as the way to manage the portfolio. And what this stuff is more so saying is, how do you just look at the basket of goods as a whole? And it's super nuanced, like a super nuanced like difference there. But I think it's an important one because because you're absolutely right. Like you should Ensure that to go to the what second to last point they have, asset allocation is not informed by plan. One, make sure you have a plan. Like that was, they didn't even say that there, but my biggest takeaway from that is like, have a plan. Yeah, and, and by, write it down, right? Yeah, and, and, and this write it could down. be, you could be sending yourself a text message. It could be uh, a note you make on your phone or whatever that says five bullet points. Like it just write something if you have nothing. 
So when you freak out or when you're panicked or when you have times of uncertainty, you have something that you can reference and say, when I had a clear head three years back, exactly. this is what I said I was doing. And look, my plan is still doing that. So I can step away from my phone, not make this trade and be successful long term. Precisely. Right. Precisely. Before precisely. That's exactly right. The when people join my company, often like some people that join will like grab time with me. And they're like, what are what's your advice, right? For navigating this place? Like this isn't necessarily company specific, but something I I think is important is go and write down the five principles that have made you successful to date in this in this role or this type of role. And then refer back to it every now and again. Because especially in like the fast growth, like startup-y type environment. It can get so easy that sometimes you're like, okay, I'm just going to cut this corner because I got to get this done next week. And I went, and sometimes you do have to cut that corner. But if you have your, your principles like written down, you know, you can say, I'm going to cut this corner next week, but I'm going to fix it over the next month. And like, because I know I have to go back to this thing. I think it's, it's so similar to what you were just saying there. You write down the plan so you can refer back to it and just make sure you're, you're good to go. I think that's central to, to the whole contradictory nature of, of what you talked about. But if you don't have a plan, then it's hard to do that. Yep. Yeah. So if we're rewriting this, I think that's number one that we'd suggest. And then if you want to talk point by point, portfolio sprawl is something I'm absolutely guilty of. This is what happens when you invest for 20 or 30 years, right? Um, because you switch jobs, you end up with a retirement account with a old company that doesn't easily mesh with a retirement account with a new company. You probably have some college savings for your kids that might end up in different places. You end up with the legacy brokerage account and the new brokerage account and the fintech robo advisor, like all these things. Uh, I'm probably as guilty as anyone here. I have a way to deal with it where it still kind of works for me, but the cleanup is hard. Uh, so a mistake that I'd add to this, that's a sub point to the have a plan one is not understanding your portfolio. I think that's a that's a mistake I'd say. It goes back to that the the dude that comes up every now and again. Might even come up earlier in this episode when he was asked on CNBC or whatever, what does upstart do? You go, oh, excuse me, you're breaking up, right? <laughs> Cuz he doesn't know. <laughs> Cuz he, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Just understand your portfolio and there are a couple different uh, layers to that. One is what do you hold? What do they do? Even at the most basic level. Like, what does that, you should probably go more than just basic, but like, what does that company do? And also at the more macro level of why do you have that account? Why do you have it at that broker? And it's, it, can, it can be easy to lose track of that, right? As you mentioned, like over years, but it's, I think it's an important point. Just understand your portfolio and have some rationale to it. It's another one that I, I'd say. Yeah. It, so point two here is redundant individual stock portfolio. Most people shouldn't pick individual stocks at all. So solve that one. <laughs> <laughs> like solve that one. Yeah. But um, the flip side here, again, contradictory, because that's how investing is, is sometimes you need to scratch that itch. And it's better Ooh. to scratch that itch with 5 or 10% of your portfolio than it is with 100% of your portfolio. So listen, if you're doing that, if you say, I'm throwing all my money in this robo-advisor or this target date fund, and then I have a bucket over here that I kind of play with and it's not lottery-like, but it's more lottery-like. Um, I want to take some bets on some high flyers or whatever. 
then disregard this point. What you're doing is managing your emotions, and it doesn't really matter if you have some redundancy here. Now, it could get a maybe that's how it starts, and it eventually gets crazy where you have tons of uh, individual yep. exposure yep. that's redundant. In that case, button that up. But I would argue that most people should not make a single change to their portfolio based on this article unless it's you've totally gone stale for five or 10 years. That's I think that's probably a pretty strong and uh, probably the safest statement. I don't mean safe isn't bad. I just mean like that probably is the safest statement. I hope so. I'll end it with that then. Boom. No, there's one more thing we got to talk oh. about. Uh, sub app, suboptimal asset allocation. Mm. This is important. If you have a post-tax account versus pre-tax account, an account that's going to get taxed, your bond holdings, you might want those to be municipal bonds because there's a tax benefit to holding municipal bonds. That like, You can do this, but again, what's the return on investment here? How many bucks yeah. are you talking about? What does it all mean? A lot of people don't even hold bonds in their uh, taxable accounts. <laughs> a lot of people don't even invest in taxable accounts. Like, I think you get pretty deep down the rabbit hole here. Yeah, that's but true. I love Wealthfront. Uh, Betterment is a competitor that I think is is also solid on the kind of fintech robo advisor stuff. Um, I think there are some fantastic solutions, and companies like that will guide you to places where you get optimal allocation based on your tax uh, position. And so I think it's important, but I just know we're probably only talking about five or 10% of the population that it actually matters. Good point though. It's an important point. All right, what's next in your fishbowl? It's a Harvard Business Review article on a study about people that have lived abroad and how living abroad helps one develop a clearer sense of self. Yep. They studied like 2,000 participants. They did all sorts of different testing around how long you lived abroad, how many different places you lived abroad. You know, like, did you live in one country for three years? Did you live in five countries for three months each? All these additional things. We will post the article out and you can do a deep dive if you want. But the main takeaway is that they say that people that live to abroad specifically develop a sense of self-concept clarity which they define as to the extent of which someone's understanding of him or herself is clearly and confidently defined internally consistent and temporarily stable i don't temporarily know temporarily stable <laughs> temporarily like oh, oh, temporal, oh, okay yes sorry okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. thank you for because i i blended that uh I don't know that that's the clearest definition, but what I took it to mean is basically you better understand who you are because mm -hmm. you force yourself into a situation which is uncomfortable. And there's a great quote from Michael Crichton at the end of this um, essay, if you want to call it that, that talks specifically about how when you are forced to live internationally, you leave all these comfortable things behind, like your routines, your friends, your your family, you know, like, so you really have to figure out who you are. And in doing so, you get more confident in not who you are in the United States, not who you are in Costa Rica, not who you are in Japan, like who you truly are, independent mm -hmm. of location, independent yep. of routines, yep. independent of these 
comforts that you often lean upon. And because of that, they show positive impacts on well-being, job performance. I would argue, it's not specifically in the study, on investing because you truly understand what's meaningful to you. You also um, get a, I want to call it a larger worldview, but maybe that's a cop-out. Like You're generally more open to other perspectives because you have to be. For a different reason, but we've discussed people like Sir John Templeton, Guy Spear, Buffett, who have left the hustle bustle locations to go to a place where they can be with themselves. Mm -hmm. I would say, like for the most part, again, maybe for different reasons, but probably with some of the same benefits uh, that that you get kind of here around when when you take yourself away from other distractions. It allows you to to focus more um, on the things that might be most important. Whether that's tied to self-awareness or not exactly, like it depends on the individual, but but I can definitely see that. And I don't think we need to force a, a an investment tie, but I do I think that there definitively is one for the the reason you just stated. And understanding yourself, we already talked about it in this episode. Understanding yourself is so critical. Don't be Buffett. Like you're not. That's not who you are. Not at all. And full disclosure here, I'm absolutely biased. I lived abroad. It was meaningful to me. I feel like it improved uh, my sense of self-clarity and other things. I feel like it's had a positive benefit in my career. But I thought this article was just incredibly well done because they did use a scientific method with multiple studies. It's not one study. Then they tried to pick holes in that study and, and break down different things. There's even some additional testing they did with people who were scheduled to live abroad who actually then didn't go for one reason or another to validate some of their hypotheses. So fascinating stuff. I liked it. We'll put it on the subject. Even without your, your bias there, the abstracted point that I take away too, from what you said, I haven't read the piece yet, but from what you yeah. just said, the abstracted point is around what you said at the beginning, your comfort zone, like taking yourself out of your comfort zone um, is an important piece. So it doesn't have to be overseas. But even if you've if you've grown up in one particular like town, for example, right? What are you like if you then like get outside of that town? Who are you? Right? Move to a different state. Like I think that there are there are other ways um, to get out of it. And within the world of investing, there's also something that's kind of like uh, thinking about um, different markets. Like you you can say, oh, I'm an incredible investor because I can do X Y Z. Yeah, that's true in 2020 in a bull market maybe for example, but who are you and can you follow the same principles when you're in a bear market? Right? And I think that that's, it's important. It's a, I do think that it's abstracted away, really important points. And that's actually a, that'd be a fascinating follow-up study. Like the U.S. is so diverse. Do, do people that have lived in New York, LA and Alabama, there's gotta be a clearer sense of self than someone who just uh, is in the same neighborhood yeah. they grew up in 40 years later. And so it's um, interesting. Yeah. There's fascinating. There's some fascinating concepts to build upon here that I really, really like and support. I often go back to William Green's book and he he t- kind of talks about some of the uh pitfalls, the the things that guarantee underperformance. And yeah. I always tried to take that to 
yeah, but can we reverse engineer that to the things you should do mm-hmm. to improve performance? And those things might be exercise, sleep well, see friends, cultivate relationships, pay it forward. You know, there's yep. like yep. this whole host of things that are proven to uh, improve decision making. Well, one of the things you might put on that list is getting out of your comfort zone geographically, I think. And how you do that will look different for everyone, but it's probably a value add piece. Fascinating. Fascinating. I got one more thing in the fishbowl. All right. There's this Bill Ackman interview with Harry Stebbings, 20 minute VC from back in March that I just got around to listening to. And there are three points that came up in this interview. It's about an hour long. So lots in it. Bill Ackman, smart guy. He's come up on this podcast a bunch. There are three things that I want to drop that I thought were particularly interesting from it. So one is, generally speaking, Bill Ackman will, and his firm will uh, Pershing Capital. Did I get that right? <laughs> Pershing? Okay. Bill Ackman from Pershing Capital. He will uh, generally invest for longer periods of time, like hold something for years, not like a day trader or anything about that nature. But he got, he got this question from Harry that was, uh, what are signs that you maybe made a mistake, right? That you're not going to hold something for a while. And I think this is an important point. He said, when new facts emerge that are inconsistent with the original thesis, very basic, very basic statement, but he came, he came back with it like that. And it gets to the point that we brought up earlier around, first of all, you have to have a thesis, right? You need to have a plan, first of all. And the example that he was giving was $400 million they lost on Netflix fairly recently. I think it was just last year, right? That his, his firm lost on Netflix. And he was saying, made a big bet. On Netflix, we had a thesis. A few months later, the data came back. We realized our thesis was just wrong. And so we sold it, right, for $400 million lost. And it's a just, it's in the DNA. Second point, and interrupt me if, uh, mm-hmm. if you want to stick on something. Uh, the second point, he got a question from Harry. Uh, what's a trend that investors are missing right now? And I wouldn't call this necessarily a trend, but what he said was persistent inflation. Like inflation at this level is going to be around for longer than people are giving it credit for. And he, what he stated was he's like in the three to 4% range. It's just going to be higher than whether or not that's right. Who knows? But I thought it was really interesting. And his, uh, the reason he said that the market, the reason he knows the market has it wrong is he said, if you look at 30 year tread, like long-term treasuries, long-term treasuries are at like three and a half percent. And if inflation is at 4%, then it makes no sense that long-term treasuries are going to be below it, right? So like the markets are looking at it, right? Love this point. We talked about um, the betting predictions for mm-hmm. the Fed fund rate, yep. like in February. And they were saying it was going to peak towards five and then just fall off. Basically, every Fed meeting since that point, in like, it was like March or April, was going to have a Fed funds rate cut. We're far enough into the year now that that's basically already proven to be untrue. Yep. Sure, something catastrophic could happen and they could cut the rate to zero. I'd, I'd call that a low probability event. But also what he's articulating there that I believe strongly that I don't think investors get yet is um, what happened is inflation spiked to 10 and then it's pretty much consistently coming down. But it's not going to continue to consistently go down back to the 1%, 2% uh, 
ideal target. There will be some turbulence here. At some yep. point, it will go back up. At some point, it will come back down. Like you look at any of the um, historical data for similar times back in the 80s, it doesn't just go away. It often takes a decade <laughs> to it's like complex. fully go away. And, and so what that means is 4%, you know, to use his logic here. 4% of your money evaporates when you're used to 1% of your money evaporating every year. And yep. that's not priced in to almost yep. anything because people just think this is a one hit wonder that we're going to tame and then we'll never have to worry about it again. That's not how it works. Exactly. Exactly. Right. This last one I loved. And this, this hits on the point directly that the 2020 point that I touched on a couple minutes ago. Right. That's around this in this type of market when people thought they were stars. I'm not the only like we we've talked about this a bunch. People talked about this a bunch, but I think he, he hit this, he nailed this one. The question was, what types of businesses don't work in a zero interest rate world? That was the question that was asked to him. He he looks just like the guy, uh, the transdime dude. He looked at Harry Stebbings through his soul and retorted back. He laughs and he goes, Everything works in a zero interest rate world. <laughs> that point so clearly made was missed by so many people that like, it is difficult in a zero interest rate world to not be able to be successful in this, in this context, right? Obviously, like you still have all the laws of business, <laughs> like you can just make less money than you, than you spend all that stuff. But generally speaking, whew, I thought you nailed it. I personally love a 5% interest rate world yeah. and I'll be happy in a 10% interest rate world because I'm ready for some of these, uh, you know, the tide to go out as Buffett says, like he's so right that there were, I mean, go to the startup world, Deagles. You could pitch almost anything, get a ton of money, run with it. And in most cases, never make a profit, but that yeah. didn't put you out of business like it does today. And what people forget, or maybe never knew, what people forget is what did we used to call a five or six percent interest rate world? Nor well, actually, great. I mean, so normal in like 2003, but <laughs> if you had the context of like the 90s to the 60s, you called it great. You called it like amazingly cheap debt. Yeah, we used to call it the world. <laughs> that's that's the thing. The last stupidest 15... joke ever. <laughs> no, I've said many worse, so you can't say that's the stupidest. Uh, but if you like, the last fifteen years were just such an anomaly that being being in this world makes sense. Like a world in which it's not Tina, Tina, Tina all day shaking her hips, right? It, like you you think about asset allocation as we discussed before. Think about being able to save. You think about what it means to buy that house to like put your money in that asset. You think about taking out a loan. You think about the capital that you're investing in startups. Like you think about all this stuff because the numbers matter. That's just called the world. And also throwing down a gauntlet here, democracy cannot exist in a zero interest rate world. No, Aikman just said everything exists, Douglas. Everything okay, yeah. for us. <laughs> that is okay. That's true. It's playing your true. thought there. In a zero interest rate, a zero interest rate world will extend income inequality because the people that have capital 
are able to put more and more capital and grow more and more capital cheaply. And so therefore, it ex it just widens the gap for income inequality. And democracy cannot exist for long periods of time with vast income inequality. Mm, okay. Um, that's it. But that's it. No, no, I mean, there's no retort. No, no. Talk about nuance. There's so much more to that. <laughs> a really high in a, let's call it a 15% interest rate world. It's very tough for the lower income folks to get the financing they need to no, no, uh, I, no, have the I American dream. I didn't say the higher the interest rates, the better. I just said okay. in a zero interest rate world, that's what happens. There's a, there's a just, lot behind that. I think yeah, it's I told too you. simple, man, because there's pros and cons <laughs> to all that. Like, I'm going to, I'm not going to fight about that point today, but I'm just going to like put a little note over here on my whiteboard, like <laughs> come back to this and don't let Dougals get away with that much nonsense, that blatant statement. <laughs> there you go. Love it. What else you got? That's it this week, guys. Uh, hit the Twitter account at Skippy Dougals. We love listener mail. SkippyDougals at gmail.com. Uh, premium subscriptions available if you'd like to support the show, which we love. That really does have a meaningful effect behind the scenes, guys. Uh, makes life easier for us. SkippyDougals.supercast.com. Thank you. Peace. Peace.